podcast one production. Let me start with a bit of a confession. One of my good friends, he's investor number three in a little firm you've probably never heard of, Uber. Oh, that's right. You've heard of Uber. Everyone's heard of Uber because of what Uber does. But before you knew what Uber does, who even thought you could do that? I mean, first, you'd need a smartphone. Actually, you'd need a lot of smartphones because you have to have a smartphone, and so does the driver. Back in the beginning, that meant limousine drivers who picked up extra work in their downtime. And I remember when my friend gave me $20 in Uber credits to give the service a try. I installed the app, I tapped on it, and suddenly I got this great new world where I could order up transportation on demand and see it as it drove my way. It took all the waiting and uncertainty of ordering a taxi out of the equation. Made it all very smooth, very easy, very friendly. And I'd never be left waiting again. That story has been repeated now hundreds of millions of times. As people all around the world hailed an Uber or a Lyft or an Ola or a Didi and on and on and on. That's changed the way we think of transportation because we we no longer need to think about a car to get ourselves around. Do we, Drew? I never thought I'd say this, but no, we don't. And let me just say, this is huge for me. You see, since the age of, oh, about eight, I've never not had a car. From the Mazda 808 that I used as a paddock basher on my parents' sheep farm via the tuned and turboed Volvos, Citroens, BMWs and my dalliance with V12 Mercs and V8 Porsches, cars, owning them, driving them, maintaining them and paying for them mindlessly and many times over has been a central part of my life. So it figures that within a month of moving to Sweden, I'd bought a car. Keen to live out one of my more twisted automotive fantasies, I bought a Volvo XC70, a jacked-up burgundy station wagon with a kicking stereo and a cream leather interior that was like a warm hug. I named her Jeanette. The price of admission? About $8,000. Add in another $500 for the insurance. The very next day, my boyfriend and I drove to Oslo, because Volvos are made for road trips, and I managed to smash a tail lamp on a letterbox that I swear came out of nowhere. 70 bucks. And then I got back to my hometown and had to arrange parking permits. $120 a month, congestion charging, $30 a month, and a cunning scheme to evade the street sweepers and their $120 fines every second week. Then, of course, it needed a service, $1,000, and a second set of wheels and winter tyres, another $500. I also averaged about $140 a month in petrol, even though I used the car maybe once a week. For the first time in my life, I came to realise that with cars, like with yachts, the purchase price was just the beginning, and I wanted it to end already. (laughs) As they say, the happiest days of a yacht owner's life is the day they buy their pride and joy, and then, of course, the day they sell it. So three months after buying Jeanette, I sold her. 
For the first time in my life, I don't have access to a daily driver. And I've got to be honest with you, the feeling of freedom, freedom from parking, freedom from petrol and an urban environment, at least in this part of the world, that's increasingly hostile to daily driving is amazing. I'm fortunate that I live in a walkable city with amazing public transit and a plethora of micromobility solutions, something we'll explore later in the episode. But even in places where the alternatives aren't so great, folk my age and younger are giving up on the car. Take, for example, Sal's daughter. And not just my daughter. For the last year, I've had two 18-year-olds in the house, my girl with no interest in cars and a good old country boy who loves pumped-up trucks apparently. But neither of them has any remote interest in getting their licence, even though they've been eligible for two years. And why? Well, between the numerous friends with cars and a will to drive and the convenience of Lyft and Uber, there is no need to get in the line and queue for a licence themselves. And cars just don't have the appeal they had when we were teens. These kids craft their personas on digital networks, not on the road. The car is a convenient place to cluster if there's nowhere else to go. But Mark, otherwise it's just transport from A to B and nobody really cares how it sounds or how it drives or who owns it. All of these changes in transportation, they're landing. They're real. They're changing the landscape right now. Not long ago, I was chatting with a very successful venture capitalist. In a meeting with the junior partners at his firm, these are all very successful young men in their 20s. They're all on six-figure salaries. He asked them, just out of the blue, how many of you folks own a car? Twelve of them in the room. And guess how many raised their hand? Not one. One of them actually did speak up. Well, boss, he replied, We were wondering why you had that $300,000 underperforming asset parked downstairs. In this transition, from emotion to transaction, we all become passengers. So what can we expect for these next billion passengers? In this episode of The Next Billion Cars, special correspondent Drew Smith talks to Zipcar founder Robin Chase about what it means for cities in our billion passenger future. Then co-host Sally Dominguez speaks to the mastermind behind a hydrogen-fueled fleet of subscription vehicles in China. But first, let's start with some basics. Behind and beyond everything else, it's the idea of transport that's changing. And we have Uber to thank for this. Love them or hate them, Uber has changed the way we think about transportation as profoundly as Tesla has changed the way we think about electric vehicles. Uber's given passengers a taste of this seamless end-to-end experience where you get picked up on demand at your location and deposited at request at your destination. And all of that is sorted through a very well-designed app that has all of the payment data stored inside of it. So you don't need to hand any cash or credit cards to the driver at the end of the ride. They can focus on making the drive as nice as possible. And when Uber introduced UberX, which effectively turned every car everywhere into a potential Uber, it instantly gave them as much capacity as they needed to handle as many passengers as wanted to use their service. That was a tipping point from Uber as a great idea into Uber as this new kind of service, something that we call mobility as a service. 
Mobility as a service is a much broader idea than Uber, although we wouldn't be talking about mobility as a service if there had never been an Uber. LEK consulting partner Mark Streeting advises businesses and governments around the world on mobility as a service. He'll explain to us what it all means. Mobility as a service captures the planning, pricing and payment of transport services. So in a sophisticated offer, we also provide the customer with real-time feedback on traffic conditions or other events which might necessitate a change in their journey. And of course, from a supplier perspective, the big piece is the data issue and the capturing of full end-to-end trip data for quite complex journeys. So I think historically, when people were making journeys in an urban environment, it was very linear. So you made a fundamental decision as to whether to use a private car and travel from A to B, or for a commuting trip, you might catch a train or a bus. Well, life's a lot more complicated now, and journey making is a lot more complex. So we often use an example of a person travelling across a big city like Sydney or London who's going to a birthday party and has a parcel with them that's quite big and bulky. And all the decision points that need to be made to make that journey from point A to point B, including connecting with their friends along the way and arranging points in the city that they're going to meet, which of course is not done by voice anymore, it's done by WhatsApp or some other digital media. So what consumers want is that capacity with a few clicks on their smartphone to plan those journeys, pay for those journeys and receive real-time feedback as to whether they need to make changes en route. For example, if there was a road accident, unexpected congestion, or indeed, perhaps even a change of destination. Now, if that sounds like there are a lot of moving pieces to make mobility as a service work, you'd be right. This isn't the province of a single company, even one as big as Uber, but involves collaboration between governments, public and private transport, and the passengers. So there's a lot of different stakeholders in the mobility as a service ecosystem. And a lot of the advice we've been providing to those stakeholders is you need to find your place in that ecosystem. Are you going to be at one extreme, quite passive and let it happen? Or at the other extreme, are you going to be an orchestrator and provide a mobility as a service platform? Or are you going to be in some position in between where you're an active participant but you don't want to take on that role of being the orchestrator and standing up the platform. So there's a range of different roles that can be taken. And in some cities, we're seeing government take on that role of the orchestrator. In other cities, we're seeing the private sector take on that role of the orchestrator. In other cases, we're seeing entities like motoring organisations take on that role as the orchestrator. There is no right answer. And in fact, I think we're going to see a plethora of players standing up those mo- these mobility as a service platforms. When all of that comes together, you get a system similar to one recently trialled in Queenstown, New Zealand. So Queenstown is a great example in the Australian New Zealand region of a proof of concept for mobility as a service. And why it was an important site was the very high level of inbound tourism. It's a tourism destination where people, frankly, don't understand their transport options particularly well. And there's strong demand for associated services with transport, whether it be things like heli-skiing or access to attractions and the like. In addition, there's a major congestion problem 
uh, sounds a bit far-fetched, but for a small regional town, there is ma- there is major congestion on the road to and from the, the downtown area in the evenings and the mornings when the flights come and go. So the intention here was to provide that platform to enable people to make optimal choices. No one can make an optimal choice if they're unaware of all of those options that are available to them, through from a limousine, taxi, shared van service, um, and when you're presented with all those options, one thing becomes immediately evident is you see that people start making different choices. So, for example, a flat fare bus service was put on locally, and that has benefited enormously through the provision of this Mobility as a Service app, which has opened that service up to people who, quite frankly, would not have otherwise thought to use it. So we've seen through that pilot exercise significant uptake and growth in public transport usage, which is not only environmentally friendly, it takes congestion off those roads because we're increasing average vehicle occupancy, which is a key goal for government, obviously, of any mobility as a service deployment. Designed well, mobility as a service gives passengers choice of route, of convenience, of price, and lets them choose the options that best suit their needs without needlessly burdening them with choices they wouldn't know enough to make. It can help the take-up of public transport. It can help keep the roads free from congestion, particularly during peak hours. It can do all of that. But right now, well, a recent analysis showed that Uber has actually increased the congestion on Manhattan streets as more vehicles take up the load that was previously carried by the subway. So mobility as a service, it can make things worse. Governments have to think very carefully about how they manage the mix of transport options. For example, governments might want to think about how they use their subsidies and how they might want to push people towards using environmentally friendly modes. So, for example, I might be given a subsidy to use bike share because that's taking me off a motorised mode that's uh, not as environmentally friendly. Mobility as a service is something entirely new, so we really don't understand how to make it work well for everyone in every city everywhere. But we're working on it, and over the next billion cars, it will only get better. Now here's special correspondent Drew Smith talking about the origins of car sharing. Now, long before Uber was a twinkle in Travis Kalanick's eye, way back in 1948 actually, there were the protean stirrings of another kind of mobility as a service, car sharing. Unlike Uber's ride-sharing model, where one driver shares their car with many passengers, car sharing sees one car shared with many drivers. The Selbstfahrer Genossenschaft is the first recorded mention of a car-sharing service. Proposed for a housing development in Zurich, Switzerland, it laid the foundations for subsequent iterations of the idea across France, the Netherlands and the UK. But it wasn't until the launch of Zipcar, founded by Angie Danielson and Robin Chase in Boston, Massachusetts in the year 2000, that car sharing became a thing. By the time I moved to London in 2010, Zipcar had captured the imagination of the city, and until I got my hands on a lovely old BMW estate, I satisfied myself with the convenience of Zipcar's Volkswagen Golfs. Then along came BMW's Drive Now service, 
which differed in one crucial aspect. Unlike Zipcar's out-and-back model, which meant that you had to return a car to where you picked it up, DriveNow would allow me to leave my car at my destination and get home another way. Perfect for a pint or two across town. But progress waits for no one, and across Europe and America, we're seeing an explosion of bike and scooter sharing services, collectively known as micromobility, which are shifting the way we get around cities yet again. Robin Chase, the co-founder of Zipcar, hasn't stood still either. Recognising that many cities have become singularly hostile to anyone not travelling in a large vehicle, she's helped create the new Urban Mobility Alliance and their shared mobility principles for livable cities. The aim? To foster the creation of urban environments that are more equitable to everyone that lives within them and moves through them. I caught up with Robin earlier this year in London. She'd just delivered a keynote that demanded that we think about passengers, where they're coming from and where they need to go in a much more holistic, humanistic way. I started off by telling her about selling Jeanette the Volvo and the pain that had led me to that point. You're really amused by your description. Is So it was 19 years ago that I co-founded Zipcar and among the first users, was someone who lived in the down, in downtown Boston on Beacon Hill. He had his car, and he would not use, he would use our car because he didn't want to lose his parking space. And so he continued to own both, and then he realized his parking tickets were adding up so much that then he just sold his car. So you're describing the kind of pain and also this tenacity of car ownership that as long as it's cheap and easy, you love having it there, we love having it there, for when I might need it. And it's becoming more and more painful to use it, but you still keep it until you are really, really forced to sell it. So, you know, with number one, we make it easier to go other ways. And then number two, we finally make it really hard to park. So, I mean, what you've just said there leads to uh, kind of a question that certainly runs through my mind in my work as kind of a, a design strategist is this question of induced demand and how uh, cities kind of are dealing with a rapidly shifting mobility ecosystem where they don't seem to have control over the demand anymore. What's been really interesting to me is you are talking about, we've built, we've built cities for the last hundred years to induce demand for cars. And so they've been built and zoned that way that you have to have apartments, have to have parking spaces and offices and restaurants have to have parking. So we've built all that in and the expense as an as an individual and the lack of space for all of us. So there's a real mismatch that I still want to get there and you've only given me one choice and it's incredibly painful and expensive. So we are at this exact moment around induced demand and I think that is the work that I'm trying to do now is to level that playing field is the way I would normally say it. So we need to have a level playing field among the choices which we don't have today. If yet... There's a whole bunch of car owners who are thinking they don't see the problem. So they're thinking, you're taking my space and you're giving it to public transit. You're taking my space and giving it to, to bicycles or scooters. And I have this, I was walking down the street in my neighborhood 
and there was a crazy man approaching me on the sidewalk. I want to say he was slightly crazy, I, you could tell. And he was screaming out loud about the fact that a bicycle had just passed him on the sidewalk, and he's screaming, that bike, you know, I can't believe, what's he doing on this sidewalk? Who said bicycles be on sidewalks? And he's screaming and screaming, and he approaches the intersection where I am, and there is a car double parked in the crosswalk. And he just walks around that car and doesn't men- make a mention of it, and I feel like that's the world we're living in right now. I just want to take a break here and reflect on what I've seen in Sweden over the last year. When I arrived in town, micromobility was limited to a docked bike-sharing system, much like you'd find in London, New York, or a dozen other cities around the world. You pick a bike from a fixed location and you return it to another, near your destination. Starting in December of 2018, we got our first free-floating scooter-sharing service. The company, Voy, placed these electric kick scooters across the entire centre of town, and before long, folk were scooting around looking mostly like they were out for a jolly. Then winter came, and even the hardy locals balked at riding these newfangled things on ice and snow. But since January, we've gone from one scooter provider to three, with Tear and Lime joining the fray. And in the same time, I've noticed that scooters are increasingly part of people's morning and evening commutes. The thing is, they feel human-scaled and even less threatening than bicycles, let alone peak-hour car traffic. Robin, it's fair to say, has a strong view on this emerging space. People are screaming and yelling about the space public transit is getting, about those darn bicycles, about the horribleness of these electric scooters, and they are completely blind to the fact that we have, how many, two billion cars in the world today, and what's going on in cities, and how much space we've allocated to cars. So there's one of the dreams, I should be asking you, um, one of my dreams is how I want to do more cultural work and engage with artists to how can we get people to see what is the unfairness of what's happening on streets. How do we get people to appreciate, yeah, this this injustice that's happening on our streets that we've now given everything over to cars. And just now in London, as I've been walking around, every place where we've taken away cars is a pleasant place to be, isn't it? Right. And so you just think, wow, the difference between pleasant and unpleasant is, are there, is there big motorized traffic making noise and chaos and danger for me and the places that don't have that feel great and so i guess this is something uh and this is where i kind of tread a a slightly awkward line with 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 this podcast is i work for the industry right and yet i have this contrarian view and when you when you go to a lot of the big motor shows and you see kind of the traditional manufacturers and their proposals for what kind of a shared mobility future looks like if you can even call it shared but there's kind of you know all of these autonomous pods that they're they're putting on show stands they are fundamentally kind of quite selfish expressions of what this future is and so i guess one of the things i'm interested to understand is what is the response of kind of the traditional automotive sector to the principles uh that you've worked so hard to put forward What's striking to me, so if I were talking to an, an audience of, of manufacturers, <laughs> um, 
I understand that they have their status quo companies and factories and business models and employees, and they are in a really hard space now. I'm profoundly aware of that. But the longer and slower they are, the more they cling to their past, the more the increasing likelihood that it's going to be startups that create the future. Because I think about it, this as like, it's physics that is saying, in, we have seven and a half billion people on this planet, <laughs> right. and cities are urbanizing. There is no room for every adult to own a car. There is no room. And so it is, and the idea of saying, okay, we're going to have, you're still going to own a car, but you can swap it out, and you'll be owning lots of different cars. There's no room for that. There is no room for that. We'll return to Robin in a future episode of The Next Billion Cars, where we dive into the environmental impact of the future of the car. But coming up after the break, Sal speaks to Brendan Norman from Grove, building a hydrogen fueled mobility fleet in China, using the car as a subscription model to facilitate the rollout of hydrogen infrastructure in cities. We've already heard how subscription models for passenger cars have the power to transform the noise, the air quality and the physical spaces in our cities. Subscription also puts control back in the hands of the provider, enabling them to dictate to a degree what cars we will see on our roads and what fuels those cars will be using. China-based startup Grove Hydrogen Automotive is using a hybrid subscription and ownership model to scale up a hydrogen infrastructure in targeting cities. China is first, but their model is relevant for most of our dense urban populations. I spoke to Brendan Norman, Chief Strategist and Co-Founder at Grove. What we're doing with Grove is we're creating a company which has a number of different models being developed uh, in in different schemes. The idea is that we've got some cars which are more optimised towards the sharing model And then we have some cars which are more optimised towards an ownership model, which is still a very strong model here in China. The idea for that is if we're able to put a large number of sharing vehicles in certain areas and around key areas, we're able to then justify the investment in the infrastructure, which allows us to put the infrastructure in key areas of a city. And then by building a number of these pockets where we locate the infrastructure, this then justifies the uh, customer enjoyment as such of the vehicles which are then sold for um, for retail purposes down the track. So basically you're using that um, lease or subscription model to get the infrastructure into the areas where you think perhaps down the track you'll have consumers ready to buy those cars and own them. That's right, Sally. At the moment... There's quite a strong movement towards the mobility uh, programs within China. They're um, focused on certain areas around business complexes and some housing complexes, which allow people to enjoy those those cars and those vehicles. And therefore, there becomes a number of vehicles located in certain areas. So the idea is that we can then focus on those areas, set up the infrastructure for hydrogen. That's part of what our company does as well in terms of delivery of the hydrogen. And then by locating these cleverly around the city, we're able to have a very good coverage of the city um, and have that 
done in a way where it's justified by an instant influx of vehicles to the country or to the city, which allows us to justify the the reasonably high investment in the hydrogen infrastructure. But of course, with a few hundred vehicles located around it, instantly that starts to generate revenue and therefore pay for itself. And that's the logic where we're chasing. Now, I guess the other thing about hydrogen is that in terms of the consumer habits around a vehicle, it's kind of more like petrol, isn't it? In that you have to fill up a lot less often and you go to a Bowser and do it. You don't do it in the home. I would have thought that if you can get the infrastructure in there, then the uptake could be pretty quick because it's not a new habit to build. Yeah, that's the idea that we've got in principle, Sally, and it's part of our marketing uh, marketing story uh, that we're able to offer a lifestyle or a respect of the lifestyle of the customer to be able to let them enjoy the way that they've enjoyed the car in the past. So the car takes around three to five minutes to fill. Um, depending on the size of the tank, but it's not very long. It's about the same as it takes to fill a petrol car. And then with our cars, we've got the larger of the cars that we've shown has a range of 1,200 kilometres. And our cars generally have a a very high range for all of them, the way that we've developed them. Do you have plans for the driverless market or are you fully steering towards drivers in the near future? We have a cooperation at the moment towards autonomous driving, so that's definitely part of it. However, the way we've developed the cars is we've developed them for people who have a love of driving and therefore the cars are quite sporty in their nature and we've developed them around the driver. Uh, At the moment, the development of driverless technology is exciting and it's certainly something that we're integrating into the vehicles, but more as um, as an accompaniment for safety and so on. We certainly want people to enjoy driving these cars and they're designed in such a way that they can be enjoyed. Just thinking about the models, so those first hydrogen cars that are going out, in order to build your infrastructure, having this subscription model, what's it actually look like? With the first vehicles that are going out, we've actually just signed a contract this weekend with Panda uh, Mobility and this company will be taking 10,000 cars with us over the next two years. And what will happen with those cars is they'll be distributed across the country of China in certain areas, and this will allow us to set up the infrastructure together with them. This gives us two benefits. Obviously, we're producing quite a lot of cars and we've got a good market that's been justified already to be able to bring down our total production cost, of course, because that's a key in developing a new technology area. But also what it allows us to do is to put in the infrastructure around where the Panda cars are going to then justify um, that infrastructure being used very aggressively from its start. Are they subscribing? Are they leasing the cars? Is it a monthly subscription? What's the system? The system that's being used at the moment in a lot of different companies here in China is a monthly monthly usage fee that's being um, available to customers. There's various different programs offering various different subscription models, but in general, it's a monthly operation which allows the user access to different types of cars uh, for different periods of time uh, on a kilometer basis in general. And that's where our cars are fitting into as well. So it's a really interesting example of the subscription model harnessed to exponentially increase hydrogen infrastructure in cities. China's hydrogen is created from waste gases, so Robin will be happy too. This could be just the model we need to ramp up alternative fuels infrastructure in Aussie cities. Mark, 15 years ago, you lived in LA. It's the home of car culture, but it's also renowned for congestion. 
Will the good people of LA ever give up their beloved cars? Well, Sal, the same conversation that I was having with one venture capitalist being ridiculed for his really expensive underperforming asset, there was another venture capitalist at the table who lives in Los Angeles, in West Hollywood, which is not far from where I lived when I lived in LA. And he told me at the end of that conversation that he had happily just gotten rid of his car. And I I just looked at him because there is no way in Los Angeles you can reasonably think of giving up your car. The city is too big. The mass transport solutions aren't good. They have, they do have a subway there now, but it doesn't really go that many places. And, and so I, I just asked him, how could you possibly do this? He says, look at between Lyft and Uber. And he's using Uber Pool now. He says, I can get from my house to Koreatown, which is, you know, sort of halfway across the city, for $3. And he pointed out, because he's, he's still a young man, that he's been meeting women in the Uber Pools and he's been going for dates with them. So it's working across his social life and his transportation life. And all of a sudden, he doesn't need a car in the city that defines needing a car. And everyone in L.A. is using those little green scooters. Like, it's crazy. They are everywhere and everybody's raving about it. Last time I was down there whipping around from Santa Monica to Marina del Rey to anywhere, everybody's jamming on scooters. Can I just raise an ugly spectre here? Obviously, Uber's released its S1 ahead of its IPO. We had uh, Lyft go through their IPO, uh, I think it was last week. And we're starting to see the unit economics come out around the scooter services. This sucks as a business model, people. Like, it really, really sucks. And reviewing some of the business risks that Uber talks about uh, in their S1, they're talking about going head-to-head with public transportation. They're essentially talking about gutting the provision of publicly subsidised transport for everybody. So, I mean, is this really sustainable? I I will, to that end... I think the thing about these transformational technologies is they're really flexy and agile. Like if you consider Airbnb, which is like the same model, but for houses, say, right, doesn't own any real estate, blah, blah, blah. That has suddenly changed as other regulations came in. Airbnb has now invested in Century 21. Suddenly, they're about to own real estate. I feel like the future of Uber, the future of Lyft is they're going to transform, wrap around a little. This is phase one, but we have a lot more coming. We just don't know what it is yet. And I think part of what we're starting to see, we certainly saw in the interview with Mark Streeting earlier in the show, is that, in fact, this is probably a place where government is going to establish what it wants, right? In other words, government politicians and the citizens will establish what they want as a sort of baseline for their kind of transportation solutions. Like, what does mobility as a service look like in Los Angeles, which may be different than how it looks in Sydney or in San Francisco or in New York because they're different cities and the mix will be different. And you're right. I think that the space for an Uber to be really profitable in uh, New York City or in uh, Göteborg is different than it is perhaps in a Los Angeles because those cities are different. Oh yeah, and to your point, Drew, I do worry that people without much money really do get left behind on transport. I mean, but but in the same way that they do on every other part of life, you have some governments that really care about those people and you have some governments that don't give a rat's ass. And, you know, I, I think um, I think it's going to be up to the people to make sure that the governments are there that, that still scoop up and make sure that everybody is able to get around and we don't suddenly have these little 
tiny, dense areas of people that can't move. I think one of the things that's really interesting and that we've noted, if we take a look at how fast the scooters rolled out and before that, how fast the electric bikes rolled out. And so all of a sudden now, every uh, meal delivery service in Sydney is now riding on an electric bike. And that happened in two months. And the scooters, you know, Sally, you and I saw people riding scooters in freezing cold weather in Detroit, which I just, you know, it's minus eight degrees and here they are riding around on a scooter. And so we actually see these solutions being rolled out very quickly and being adopted very quickly. We've never really seen anything like that in transport before. You know, this is it's not just like having the car invented, but it's like having the car and the bike and all these things invented time after time after time. And every week there's a new one coming out. And I think this is where I have to voice my concerns for kind of the core automotive industry. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, the unbundling of the car, if you like, for all of these really short journeys and my sense is that within the industry we just can't move fast enough to keep up with this so you know it opens up the question are we actually going to cede the territory as the core traditional automotive industry within urban environments to these new players at the moment it feels like yeah we are i feel like this is the central question at the core of this series which is that as we multiply these options we are not going to need individual car transportation in the same way that we have. We make two cars a second because so many of these cars are used by individuals. They're not shared. They're not part of this range of micromobility options that are now coming into play. All of the car makers are moving forward as if the demand for cars is going to stay the same in the future. And yet they themselves know that this is not going to be the case. How far do we get down this road before all of a sudden there's just a massive oversupply in the production of vehicles? I mean, I thought that's what was interesting about the Grove model in China, that they're basically saying, um, you know, yeah, subscription model and things for densely populated areas, but we're still going to be making vehicles for people to make that journey between cities to make that longer journey. There will always be people that want to be in a luxury vehicle, not in a train. You know, so I I'm, I'm, I'm preferring that vision of let's decongest the cities with these convenient other non-driver options, but let's keep the drive alive for those longer, scenic, beautiful tour trips. I think there may be some hint of how the automotive industry is trying to adapt to this in the fact that Volkswagen's MEB platform, so that's the battery and drivetrain platform that underpins their new kind of midsize and compact electric vehicles, they're actually looking to license that technology out. And the idea behind that, I guess, is, okay, well, if you can provide a platform to the majority of the industry, you reduce the amount of cost that goes into producing this incredibly capital-intensive, long lead time mechanical hardware um, so that the manufacturers that license the technology can just build much more rapidly adapted products on top. Right, and we saw this exactly at the Detroit Auto Show where Ford basically announced that they would be using the VW chassis to start to build their F-150 and their other trucks. But all of this is sort of assuming that we're still going to need the same number of trucks and cars. And I think, Sal, even if we're going city to city, that that's a much lower number of trips than the urban trips are. So 
we may have luxury cars going forward, but are we going to be building even a tenth of the number that we have today? So at the Geneva Motor Show earlier this year, it was fascinating to note that the Swiss National Railways had a stand at the Geneva Motor Show. And what they were offering was an integrated product that allowed you to buy a train ticket that also gave you access to a shared electric vehicle for last mile or last 10 miles when you get to the end of the train line. So that's super interesting to me. I think it's also interesting to note that the Swedish National Railways have just announced a massive reinvestment in sleeper trains. Right. Um, So when you start thinking about, okay, well, I can travel across Europe overnight. I can get access to an electric vehicle to do kind of the last part of my journey when I get to the, the urban hub at the other end of my trip. Yeah, like precisely to your point, Mark, we're going to need far fewer cars than what we're currently geared up to produce. And that's the big issue in our industry is we have massive overcapacity issues. I mean, that's a fantastic concept to really dig into too, isn't it? That public transport could now have these sort of modular compartments that allow you to load up whatever car it is that you subscribe to. Um, You know, you already have that in a, in a low-down way in car ferries and, you know, ferrying across to Phillip Island or on trains and things across the states. But if that were to scale up so that you did have that longer trip as something that was on mass transport but you still had your vehicle, again, such an interesting future model. I mean, and then right. and that turns into living, you know, how much is that car actually like a house on wheels? Are you going to stay in there for three days? Is it? Does your car become the sleeper model? Right. And, and is that something that like a camper van that you only rent for the couple of weeks a year that you're actually traveling around and then it goes back into the pool of available vehicles? But Sal, what we're starting to see here, if Drew's right and we have this massive overcapacity, what we're starting to see is that there's also this massive waste that's being generated and is going to be generated and has been generated. How are we starting to frame that waste in, in a sense that will make this a sustainable transition so we basically don't drown in our own trash? I like that you asked that question, Mark, because I have the answer. Just not right now. So the average car today weighs just a bit under two tonnes. So it's more like the next two billion tonnes when we talk about those future cars on the future scrap heap. And what happens to all that metal? Is fluff really as innocuous as it sounds? And can we design cars that are totally reused or recycled? That's coming on the next episode of The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Dominguez and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci and Drew Smith and Sally Dominguez thanking you for listening. 